Hey there, and welcome to Jeff Does Vegas 2022 in review. As the year comes to an end, I've decided to take a little trip back in time and reshare some of my favorite conversations from the last 12 months of the podcast. For the third and final installment of 2022 in review, I've decided to cover what is easily one of my favorite things to talk about, and based on your reactions to these episodes, I'm guessing it's yours as well, Las Vegas history. Over the past year, I've covered some pretty cool parts of Vegas history and been fortunate enough to be joined by some amazing guests for these conversations. Enjoy. I've taken a look at a lot of different parts of Las Vegas history over the years that I've been doing this podcast, but 2022 marked the first time that I dove into a part of the city's history that, if I'm being honest, doesn't get enough attention. Las Vegas's Black History. Back in episode number 124, I was joined by Clay T. White, the director of the Oral History Research Center at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. In addition to her position at UNLV, Ms. White is also one of the founders of the Las Vegas Black Historical Society. Ms. White and I talked about what brought her to Las Vegas, what caught her interested in studying black history, and we went deep into the founding and the eventual downfall of the legendary Moulin Rouge. So believe it or not, three white people, white men, owned and built the Moulin Rouge. Ruben, Bismo, and the other one is Schwartz. He is the 38% owner, Bismo 31%, and Ruben is 29%. Well, you add that up and you get 98%. It is possible. We have not found the evidence of this, but everybody talks about it. It is possible that the other 2% was owned by Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis is a part of that operation, and he is your host at the Moulin Rouge. So you go there on opening night, and you are greeted with the heavyweight champion of the world. You are exposed to the first African-American line of Black dancers ever in the city. And these are dancers that have have danced in New York and Los Angeles and London and Paris. And now they're together in this line of wonderful dancers. And it's like being at the Moulin Rouge in Paris. And that's what you find. Restaurants that can rival any of the restaurants on the Las Vegas Strip or downtown. It's the DeVille Room, where the waiters have tux and there were white gloves. So th this is how you are served. The entertainment is moderated by Bob Bailey. Bob Bailey was a singer with Count Basie. And now he's at the Moulin Rouge. He is the house singer and the MC. And so, so this is where you are. And the, the, the bar area, the wallpaper is designed like the, the wallpaper at the Rouge in Paris. And the building is spectacular. It's just beautiful. The rooms are magnificent. So now African-American entertainers don't just have to stay at boarding houses anymore. Boarding houses were fine, but not like 
even though it may have been segregated in places like Philadelphia and New York and, and Los Angeles, there were areas of the city that had wonderful Black-owned hotels. So when they would come to Las Vegas, they felt that it was a step down for them because they just could not, did not have the same amenities that they were accustomed to having in other places. But Las Vegas paid them more money than they earned any place else in the country. But now they have the Moulin Rouge and they have this spectacular place where they can go after leaving the Strip now and they can come to this spectacular place. And I'm sure they continue to have the jam sessions uh, in some of the other smaller places, but now they have the Moulin Rouge. And I say they probably continued at some of those smaller places on Jackson Avenue because the Moulin Rouge only lasts that heyday period where you have Tallulah Bankhead and all of these people coming from Hollywood. You have them in your audience every night. But that heyday only lasts for about six months. And the place is closed. The city said they didn't pay all of the contractors for the work that was done on the hotel. But the Moulin Rouge did something that may have caused some other problems. They put on a show at 2.30 at night. So everybody else on the Las Vegas Strip, they have a midnight show. But now the Moulin Rouge has a show at 2.30 in the morning. So now the entertainers and the high rollers have someplace else to go in this beautiful show. They can go over and see this show and take part in, in the finery of the Moulin Rouge. And that's what begins to happen. Some of the showgirls in the back of the house, in some of those casinos, there are signs back there that say, if you're caught at the Moulin Rouge, you will lose your job. So we know that they have been threatened not to go across the tracks to the Moulin Rouge. And the Moulin Rouge is in the Black community. It's just, it's, it's like a half a block where we feel that the, the, the Black community actually starts. So they're going across the tracks to a Black hotel, an integrated facility, and they're leaving the Las Vegas Strip. So the place soon closes. But that era of that kind of entertainment, that level, it has been established now. And at the same time, the Moulin Rouge is being constructed. The African-American community gets the first housing complexes. Same person who did the houses for the BMI in 1940s, he comes back and designs Berkeley Square that is now on the National Register of Historic Places. It is a development of about 148 houses that Black middle-class people can afford, and they begin to move in. And then there is Highland Square with the same housing design. And then there's Cadillac Arms. So that model that Paul Williams designed, we see it spread out through the Black community, providing space for people who've migrated here, providing home in a way 
that Paul Williams, the architect, believes that these people deserve the level of housing that they, they deserve. Going back to the 2.30 a.m. shows at Moulin Rouge, I I did a little bit of reading. I did a lot of reading in preparation <laughs> for this conversation because I, yeah. I, I was looking forward to it and I did a lot of digging. And seeing some of the information and the stories coming out of those 2.30 a.m. shows, yeah. I can understand how the other casino owners would be so upset with those 2 30 a.m shows because as you said the other shows on the strip would wrap up finish they'd be done by 1 30 yeah. everyone would head to the moulin rouge they'd party they'd drink they'd enjoy the yeah. shows and the caliber of entertainment that they were getting yeah. was big showroom entertainers that's correct you have the platters and the platters are big at this time they're in their heyday as well and they're performing there stump and stumpy and all kinds of other entertainers, Dinah Washington. These are all entertainers that you'll see at the Moulin Rouge. And now you can look around the audience and you can see all of these other entertainers right there in the audience that you're rubbing elbows with. Absolutely incredible. Just just amazing. Um, Ms. White, you mentioned about the, the short lifespan of the Moulin Rouge and the heyday of of the Moulin Rouge. And you alluded to the fact that it, it was implied that there were bills unpaid and, and that was what led to the downfall. But it seems like there's, there's more to the story than just a, a simple case of money being owed to somebody. And, and another fact that, that we have to remain conscious of and aware of is that this, there's a downturn in the economy here in, in this area. Um, so when, when there is a downturn in the economy, the casino industry really gets hit hard. So there is the Dunes Hotel, the Royal Nevada, and the Riviera also have financial problems at the same time as the Moulin Rouge. The only saving grace for the other three is that other casinos prop them up and allow them to continue to operate. No one does that for the Moulin Rouge. So that is the difference as well. So we do see a difference in the way that this economic downturn is handled. I don't know about you, but I love road trips, especially when I'm in Vegas. It's always fun to get out of the city and see some of the amazing sights in the surrounding areas. In episode number 103, we headed about 35 miles southeast of the Las Vegas Strip to Black Canyon, which is home to one of the greatest feats of engineering in the world, Hoover Dam. I was joined by Patty Aaron, public affairs officer for the Bureau of Reclamation, the government agency that manages Hoover Dam. In addition to sneaking in a few dam jokes, we talked about the purpose of the dam, Patty shared a few fun bits of trivia about the dam, and we discussed the challenges surrounding construction of the dam in the late 1920s and early 1930s. The engineers did an amazing job. They were so forward-thinking on everything that had to do with the dam. Um, and when you figure out, I mean, you're probably too young to even know what a slide rule is, but they figured this all out on slide rules. They didn't have computers. Everything was done by hand. 
on graph paper. And it, I mean, it's really incredible. Um, they built this, this magnificent structure that is going to last who knows how many lifetimes. And so how many workers were involved in the actual construction of the dam? Well, we don't know what the actual total was. It was about um, 3,300 people, men, for, per shift. But what would happen, and we think about 15,000 total, but what ended up happening was that they had crews going, three crews a day and working 24 hours a day. And they worked seven days a week. So somebody would get tired of working or get paid and go out and get drunk or something and not come to work for a while and get fired. But they needed the worker. So the worker would come back and start working under a different name. (laughs) A long list of names, but it isn't necessarily the exact number of people that worked on the dam. Right. And this was incredibly dangerous work. I mean, there was no OSHA. There was no occupational health and safety standards. There was no uh, workers' compensation board, nothing like that. I mean, these I've seen photos of some of the work construction work that was done in various places during that time period. And I mean, there was no, um, there was no tie lines. There was no secure straps there. Nothing like that. These were dudes hanging off of the side of rocks in canyons. Oh, it's frightening. I mean, they did have hard hats, but, um, not the kind of hard hats we have today, but, um, they did have hard hats, but no, they didn't. And they would, um, they would put pieces of steel on the front of their boots because they didn't have steel-toed boots back then. And so they would make their own steel-toed boots. But yes, extremely dangerous work, very dangerous work. And just not the work itself, but the environment. It gets to be 120, 125, even 130 degrees out there in that canyon. I've been out there when it's that hot in the canyon, and it is brutal. And so, I mean, the length of time that it took them to to build the dam, uh, start to finish, what was the timeline on that? It took four years from 1931 to 1935. It came in two years um, under its estimated time, and it also came in under budget. That is absolutely mind-boggling to me. So I grew up in a city called Winnipeg in the province of Manitoba here in Canada, And we used to joke about being the pothole capital of the world and they would do road resurfacing that I swear I haven't lived in Winnipeg for almost 20 years. And I swear to God, they are still resurfacing the same roads that they were working on when I lived there back 20 years ago. So (laughs) the fact that they were able to complete this massive feat of engineering and get it done in that short of a time span is both amazing to me and slightly frightening at the same time. It's, it's really an amazing feat. And like I said earlier, they had, they worked 24 hours a day, three crews going a day um, for four years. Just amazing. Um, So again, what year did the dam open up? 1935. It was dedicated on September 30th of 1935. And there was some controversy involved in the actual naming of the dam. I mean, we've mentioned both Boulder Dam and Hoover Dam. And so 
it started off as Boulder Dam and then became Hoover Dam, or was it always sort of unofficially Hoover Dam? What was the 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 situation behind the naming of it? Um, it actually officially started as Hoover Dam. Herbert Hoover was president, and this was back in the, the late 20s. And the Secretary of the Interior, who was over the Bureau of Reclamation, named it Hoover Dam. So this is all political, of course, because it's all happening in Washington. Um, Franklin D. Roosevelt was elected. Hoover was a Republican. Um, FDR was a Democrat. So he had a new Secretary of the Interior under him who was a Democrat who decided that they weren't naming anything after Hoover. So they called it Boulder Dam because it was supposedly in Boulder Canyon and after the Boulder Canyon Act. So then after uh, Truman became president, and in 1947, the Congress passed it um, to rename it Hoover Dam. Now, being Canadian, I'm not all that familiar with my U.S. presidential history, but I can only assume that Truman was a Republican, same as Herbert Hoover was. He was a Republican, yes. Again, not all that familiar with U.S. history, but I, I completely understand how the political game works. <laughs> yes, yes. So... The Republicans ended up winning this one. So it's been Hoover Dam ever since. Back in 1991, Warren Beatty jumped onto the big screen to portray one of the more colorful characters in Las Vegas' history, the legendary Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. The film Bugsy, directed by Barry Levinson and co-starring Annette Bening, tells the story of Bugsy and his role in the creation of the Flamingo and the building of Las Vegas as an oasis in the desert. But just how close to reality did the movie actually come? In episode number 132 of the podcast, I was joined by Jeff Schumacher from the Mob Museum in Las Vegas to help separate fact from fiction when it comes to the film. One of the big fallacies in the story of Bugsy is that he invented Las Vegas. But the truth is, Las Vegas was already somewhat booming by the time he made his first trip to the city and got involved with the Flamingo. This is one of the, for me, one of the low points of the film is this initial depiction of Las Vegas as being sort of this two-bit kind of rural uh, a place where the casinos are just this, everybody's asleep pretty much at the tables or at the bar and nothing's going on. Uh, in fact, uh, at that time in 1941, you had the opening of the El Rancho Vegas Hotel on the Las Vegas Strip, not a mob place. It was a mainstream uh, developer. Uh, and this was the first major resort outside of Fremont Street, the downtown area. And uh, this was the model that later became the Flamingo in the sense that this was a sprawling suburban style resort, all kinds of different activities, good, nice restaurants, showroom, good gambling, you know, take a horseback ride if you want. And then a year later, you had the opening of the last frontier just down the road. And the last frontier took that to the next level with almost a thematic old West kind of theme, but some very high profile entertainment, uh, you know, uh, good, good restaurants, that kind of thing. And besides that, you had the all of the bustle of Fremont Street. There was a ton of casinos on on Fremont Street that were doing a lot of business. And if they had depicted, they could have done that better. 
uh, in my mind. But obviously, there's they have a limited amount of time to show, okay, here's Bugsy's vision versus what's already here. And they wanted to show a big contrast. Um, so what really happened uh, was quite different. Which leads us into the Flamingo itself and how the imagining of the flamingo is is portrayed in the movie is is in my mind it is pretty amazing i mean bugsy mickey virginia they're driving back to los angeles after this whole investigating the gambling hall in dusty dirty las vegas they pull over to the 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 side of the road in the desert mickey thinks bugsy's off looking for somewhere to to take a leak um and as he's wandering through the desert he has this amazing epiphany this this vision of this gambling oasis in the desert this place that's going to draw everybody in and and he goes back to the east coast and and he convinces his his mob associates to invest in this project and and he's going to name it after virginia hill he convinces her to be involved too he's going to name it after her he's going to call it the flamingo none of this happened None of that happened. Um, you are correct. I will note, though, a couple of great lines from that from that set of scenes. You know, there was Virginia Hill uh, when they were uh, they got to that little crappy uh, uh, casino. She said, "We drove five and a half hours for this canker sore." That was a pretty good line. Uh, and then Siegel uh, went see. Uh, is back from his vision in the desert. He said, I am talking about the single best idea I've ever had, which I think has kind of a double thought. It, it, it elicits two thoughts, which is one, oh, he's got a great idea. Or when did he ever have a, an idea? Like, did he ever have any good <laughs> ideas before this? I mean, I'm not sure he did. Um, but the reality is that the the Flamingo Hotel was conceived by a man named Billy Wilkerson. Billy Wilkerson was, there's a connection. He knew Siegel from L.A. Uh, uh, Billy Wilkerson was the uh, owner of Ciro's, uh, the place where it was depicted in the show, uh, in the movie. Uh, but also he was the owner and editor of the Hollywood Reporter newspaper. And this was a very influential uh, uh, publication uh, in Hollywood at the time. So Billy Wilkerson had a lot of money, had a lot of influence. He also loved to gamble. So he was spending a lot of time in Las Vegas gambling. And, um, and, and he conceived the idea of building a casino in Las Vegas that would mirror the elegance and the sophistication of the places that he spent time in in Los Angeles as well as Paris and other places. And he thought, I could bring all my Hollywood friends to, to Las Vegas if we had a place like this. So in 1945, uh, Wilkerson buys uh, a piece of property out on what was then called Highway 91. And, and this is where he's going to build a casino that he's going to call the Flamingo or the Flamingo Club in his mind. And uh, we have that the, that actual check, the down payment check that he made, uh, that he paid for that property, we have that on display in the Mob Museum now. Um, so Wilkerson starts building uh, the Flamingo, and he runs into some problems. Uh, the biggest problem he faces is a lack of money. And he had gotten a loan from 
actually a, 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 an investment from Howard Hughes to build. He was working on bank loans and things like that. But because Wilkerson was such an avid gambler and a very bad one at that, he was losing lots of money uh, at the same time. So he, he kind of had a, a compulsive gambling problem. And so money that could have been invested in the Flamingo was <laughs> instead being put into the cages at the, uh, at the other casinos in town. So see, Wilkerson needed investors and he, uh, ultimately turned to Meyer Lansky and Meyer Lansky's crew of people, both in New York and here in Las Vegas. And, uh, Bugsy Siegel was among those investors. And Lansky says, you know, we're going to invest this money with you, but we're going to need somebody in Las Vegas to kind of keep an eye on our investment, work alongside you, you know, see how things are going. We trust you, Billy, but hey, we're going to be there and be involved in it. And ultimately, it's Bugsy Siegel who starts spending time there. And he's standing next to, to Wilkerson on the construction site, you know, conferring, have different ideas about things. And it starts out fairly well. But eventually, Siegel takes such a liking to this project that he wants it for his own. And this, I think, goes back to this thing we were talking about earlier about the self-improvement, this idea that Siegel wants to transcend his mob past and become like a respected businessman. Um, the movie, I think accurately, <laughs> and, and Meyer, Meyer Lansky mentioned the Meyer Lansky character mentions that, that Bugsy's bad with money. You know, he doesn't respect money. And, and you can see that in the, when he takes over the Flamingo from Billy Wilkerson, he just starts spending money like crazy and he has to get this money somewhere. So he starts, you know, getting, asking for more and more money from the, his mob friends. And so Wilkerson was the guy who conceived the Flamingo. He later was pushed out of it by Siegel. Um, even though, uh, he, you know, Wilkerson was there on opening night. Uh, but that's also not depicted. I think there's a great movie to be made someday about this whole Wilkerson Siegel, uh, battle because that's the, in my mind, actually more interesting than what they ended up doing. Dark tourism is the term used to describe travel to places that are historically associated with death and tragedy. These destinations exist all over the world, including in Las Vegas. But what is it that brings people to these types of attractions? And why has so-called dark tourism seen such a boom in recent years? Back in episode number 126, I was joined by Marta Saligo, who teaches sociology of leisure at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Along with sharing a few examples of dark tourism spots in Sin City, Marta also explained why people are so attracted to the macabre. You know what the key word is, I think here, is authenticity. People travel to live authentic experiences, right? You were right in that place, the 9-11 place, right? Uh, location. You are, I remember myself when I walk, like right there where uh, JFK was killed in Dallas. Mm -hmm. I remember the sensation I had in that moment. I still have goosebumps, right? Uh, so 
you are you are living that authentic experience, right? And this is the key word in tourism. Tourists usually travel for authenticity. People go to Italy to eat the real pasta and pizza. People go, you know, to Spain to see the real flamenco dance, right? Tourists travel, they want to have the authentic experience. And tourists are obsessed with authenticity. And being there, for example, in front of the bones, in my case of the cemeteries of Marilyn Monroe, is the most authentic experience you can get. Also, unfortunately, I cannot give you precise answers because, you know, society is really, really fluid and in constant change, but also there are some, there are some scholars who argue that we have a sort of fascination for death because the more we reflect on that, the more we get close to that, kind of, it's like we are less afraid because it's really scary, right, to think we are going to die one day. So what about getting really close to it, getting, going that place where that murder happened, go to a cemetery and reflect on that, but say, okay, something I can almost manage, even if it's not true. There's several spots in Las Vegas, in and around Las Vegas, that that may fall into the category of dark tourism. Um, I've probably visited a bunch of them without even realizing that I've actually been at these spots. But what are some examples that you could provide of of dark tourist sites uh, in and around Las Vegas? So first of all, I give you a suggestion. So if you didn't, uh, the Nevada Preservation Organization offers guided tours of the Woodlawn Cemetery, the oldest in Vegas. I took that tour, it was amazing, because it has like interesting burials for Las Vegas, for the history of Las Vegas. So for example, there is PJ Gumond that was an important Las Vegas investor at the beginning of the 20th. There is Stella Parson, who was the first African-American woman to graduate from the University of Nevada, Reno. And there is Chester Sims, that was one of the first casino managers of the Flamingo. So that was a very, very interesting tour. And you can really learn about the history of Las Vegas through, you know, through the um, through this tour. And also talking about notable burials, we have the Palm Eastern on Southeastern Avenue. There is Tony Curtis. There is Robin Leach of the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Uh, Siegfried. The grave of secret that is at the Palm in downtown cemetery. And of course, the place where another dark tourism attraction, which is famous, I will say, uh, because like, um, I mean, there is not really like a sign, but it's very famous, of course, uh, is the place where Tupac Shakur was killed, uh, which is um, between the, the, the crossing, you know, East Flamingo and Koval Lane. So that's very interesting. And there are like, you know, graffiti on the, you know, on the poles in the streets. So, yes, that's very important. I've been going to Vegas on a a very regular basis for the last seven or eight years now, I guess. And I usually stay at Flamingo or Bally's. And at least once a trip, I will grab breakfast at Ellis Island, which is right near that site. And for the first several years that I was traveling to Vegas, I had no idea that that was the spot where Tupac Shakur was shot and killed. I I really had no clue. So it it was interesting to find that out afterwards that I'd been walking past this spot that so many people consider to be sacred ground, if you will. Exactly. So this is why I don't know if I will define it a tourist attraction, 
but it's really, really, I mean, if you know, it's, it's on Google. So if tourists are interested in looking for that place, it is there. And it's so it's interesting to see, to read all the, you know, what the fans wrote. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Do you consider the museums that cover dark topics to be so-called dark tourist sites? And when I think of this, I think of places like, for example, the National Atomic Testing Museum and specifically the Mob Museum. I mean, nothing really specifically happened at those sites. I guess the exception of the Mob Museum, the Kefauver hearings actually did occur in that building. But but other than that, I mean, nothing really dark and untoward happened at those spots, but they do cover very dark topics. So you open another door here because my second biggest research here was on the Mob Museum. So I wrote a lot about it. I, I conducted an ethnography there, especially because as an Italian, when I arrived <laughs> in Vegas, I realized it was a museum about mafia. I was really surprised. So this is what I can tell you that I think uh, it's, uh, it's important. So the Mom Museum is a very important and interesting uh, attraction. Uh, what really is hard for me to understand still, but, you know, I'm trying to, is this idea of idealizing the mobsters. So the godfather, the, the Hollywood, like, Godfather, you know, all these, uh, all these movies uh, really created a... Um, Strong fascination for the mob in pop culture, in American pop culture. As an Italian, this is uh, interesting, also worrisome, because we, I know what mafia can do, you know, killing innocent people. Uh, it's really like it's a plague. And I always find, found interesting uh, to analyze how and also to raise awareness uh, on how, uh, you know, mobsters are not cool but there is this interesting connection between pop culture and and so for sure the mob museum is a dark tourism attraction for sure uh nothing happened dark in that place besides as you mentioned the trials okay but besides that nothing really happened but you know they have the the mob's greatest hits wall that they is called like that they have the San Valentine massacre wall the real one you know and people are obsessed with that wall you know when i was conducting research there people were asking are these the real bullets like you know bullet holes uh, yeah so wow i have to take a selfie you know and i was like wow people got killed there mm -hmm. you know people get so excited when it comes to be close to Capone gun that is really, really fascinating. But it tells us a lot, right, about society. Well, the bad guys become the good guys because they are idealized by pop culture. Anyone who's a frequent listener to the podcast knows that one of my favorite parts of my Vegas trips is the food. Over the last several years, Las Vegas has become a foodie's paradise, with dozens of new restaurants opening up every year, featuring some of the biggest celebrity chefs and every type of cuisine imaginable. But no matter how hard you try, you just can't beat a classic. In episode number 120, I was joined by Nick McMillan, managing partner of the legendary Golden Steer, Las Vegas' oldest continually operating steakhouse. The Golden Steer opened back in 1958, and over the course of its almost 65-year history, they become known not only for their amazing steaks, but for the incredible service, old Vegas atmosphere, 
and their famous and infamous customers. Many of the booths in the restaurant are named for uh, the celebrities that have come in and dined. So you mentioned a couple, you know, Joe DiMaggio, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, we have uh, Elvis. We have Muhammad Ali, who celebrated uh, a couple of his birthdays with us. Uh, we have Mario Andretti, uh, who every year for SEMA likes to come in uh, and dine with us, which is fantastic. Um, Ralph Lamb, who was a sheriff here uh, for a long, long time and uh, uh, did his battles with the mob and uh, the in uh, the craziness of the 70s and 80s. Uh, and so, so yeah, so it's, and of course, the Rat Pack. Um, and, you know, we also have some other folks uh, that are um, a little more recent. So Terry Fader, the famous entertainer and puppeteer and comedian, uh, has a booth. Uh, Mr. William Baxter, who uh, has one of my favorite stories, who is a professional poker player uh, and actually uh, sued the United States federal government um, arguing that, I believe, arguing that, um, that poker is a game of skill uh, and not a game of chance. And so it should be taxed as a uh, as income instead of gambling winnings. Uh, and actually, I, I believe it went all the way to the Supreme Court uh, and he ended up prevailing. Uh, and so changed kind of the tax structure for, for poker players, which uh, Vegas is, is still a very libertarian kind of wild west town. Um, in some respects. And so uh, that is uh, always a fun story that I like to, to, to tell people because most, like most people that come in, they'll recognize, you know, Frank Sinatra or Muhammad Ali or an Elvis um, or Sammy Davis, but don't recognize the name Baxter. And so it's always a fun story to tell. So what happens then when say, for example, I, as a huge uh, race car fan and uh, motorsports enthusiast phone, you guys and say, I would like to sit in Mario Andretti's booth and you say, fine, that's fine. Here it is. It's available on this date. And then after I make that reservation, uh, Mr. Andretti calls and says, hey, I'm going to be in town. I'd like to come have dinner and I want to sit in my booth. Um, <laughs> how does that go down? Uh, do I get moved? Does Mr. Andretti get moved? Uh, how is that handled? Uh, you know, it's funny. So, you know, we always, uh, will, we'll do everything that we can to accommodate. Um, and, and normally they're pretty good about calling and give us a, a little bit of a advanced notice. Uh, the funny story. Uh, so the, so the restaurant has been in my, uh, my in-laws family for about 20 plus years. Uh, my wife and I came out a year before COVID to, to take it over. And the, the funny story about actually Mario Andretti, it, with my father-in-law is that right after my father-in-law uh, had picked up the restaurant, um, somebody claiming to be Mario Andretti called and, uh, and he answered the phone and uh, the, the gentleman on the other line was like, hi, this is Mario Andretti. I'd like to come in for dinner tonight. And my father-in-law is, uh, uh, you know, a little skeptical, like Mario Andretti is called to make a reservation. And so my father-in-law was like, all right, well, if you're Mario Andretti, I'm Wyatt Earp. Uh, and so I'll, I'll see you tonight when you, when you come into the restaurant. And so my father, I was sitting in the, uh, sitting in the office and, uh, one of the hosts comes in and knocks on the door and says, uh, somebody's at the door and they're asking for, for Wyatt Earp. Uh, and so, so he walks out and, uh, and sure enough, Mario Andretti is, uh, 
is uh, sitting, uh, is standing there waiting for, waiting for his table. And so uh, it's, it's kicked off a, 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 a good natured friendship with, uh, with him. And he always likes to come in and support. Uh, and uh, it's a ton of fun. And so, yes, we always, uh, always like to make room for, uh, for those folks. And uh, we certainly appreciate their support as well. Let's talk a little bit about the connection between the mob and the Golden Steer. Vegas, of course, synonymous with mob history. I've covered it in depth in the podcast. I've had numerous discussions about various uh, various facets of of mob history and that that connection in Las Vegas. Um, the Golden Steer has a very dubious connection with one particular mobster, and that would be the legendary Tony Spilatro old Mr. Spilatro. Yeah. So, um, so I, there is a, a number of, of great resources out on, uh, Tony Spilatro. Um, so he's originally from Chicago. I'm originally from Chicago as well. Um, but anyway, so in the seventies, so he came out to be an enforcer for the Chicago mob and, um, needed some other things to do and wanted to make a little side money. And so he actually opened up a jewelry shop where he would fence his stolen goods, which was called the gold rush. And the gold rush was actually very close to the golden steer. Uh, and so he would come in on a, on a frequent basis, um, whether it was for business dinners or for, uh, you know, with his crew uh, to come and enjoy. Uh, and of course his, one of his number one hitman was Frank Collada, uh, and the story of of, of, uh, of Frank Collada is is crazy as well. You know the history that he had both uh, in the mob and then of course his, his time after the mob. Um, but they used to love to come into the Golden Steer. Uh, they would come in about once a week. Uh, we uh, booth one uh, is is where they used to like to sit. Uh, it's in the corner of the restaurant, uh, so you can get a great purview of the entire restaurant. It's also close to, at the time, um, when they first started coming in, there hadn't been some expansion done. And so uh, there was a kind of a back hallway uh, that wove through the kitchen and was an easy way to escape uh, if uh, if that was <laughs> a necessity. And uh, we believe that he actually celebrated his last meal in Vegas, the Golden Steer, uh, the night before he flew back to the Midwest. Uh, before he met his uh, his demise, uh, and so uh, you know, we've kind of the nickname of kind of the Last Supper has kind of uh, has kind of stuck, and so um, you know, so that was that was on the Splatcher side, and then of course Frank used to come in as well uh, with Tony, and then afterwards um, without him, uh, and even up to I think he passed away. I think it was the summer. It was one of the last couple of summers. Um, but even before, you know, up, right up until uh, the time that he passed, he, he would come in uh, and would request uh, one very specific waiter to wait on him, who's one of our longest tenured employees. He's been with us for almost 40 years. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so it's always, you know, I will say that, you know, the thing that with the steer is that we were always known as uh, as kind of neutral ground. Uh, and so, uh, we generally would see, uh, folks from, you know, there were various mob families that were, uh, in Vegas throughout the years. Uh, but the, the restaurant remained, uh, decidedly neutral. Uh, and so we would see folks from, from kind of across the families, but of course, uh, Mr. Splatter being, uh, the most well-known, uh, for sure. 
Thanks for joining me on this little podcast journey back in time. And I hope you enjoyed revisiting these conversations about Las Vegas history. If you want to check out the full episodes, you can find the links in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com or search them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.